Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. Today, we return to the United Kingdom, taking a look at the only person to have served in Britain's foremost senior government positions, as well as serving as Chancellor, Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary under Prime Minister Harold Wilson, James Callaghan was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom between 1976 and 1979. In many ways, Callaghan represented the end of an era in British politics. He was the last Prime Minister to have been born before the end of the First World War, and also the last to have fought in the Second. More significantly though, his time in power coincided with the end of Britain's post-war consensus of nationalised industry, compromise between labour and capital, and the rise of the welfare state. In terms of wealth and income distribution, Britain was the most equal it has ever been under Callaghan's leadership, and the decades after 1979 have been characterised by rising inequality, infrequent but violent clashes between labour and management, and financial insecurity on the part of the state and individuals. Callaghan abhorred all these things, an inevitable part of having grown up during the Great Depression. But was he enough of a visionary to hold back the tide of Thatcherism? or articulate a coherent alternative. Most on the Labour left would argue that he wasn't, and they might have a point. But such an answer is to understate Callaghan's achievements in simply keeping Labour together, a task about as easy in the late 1970s as pushing water uphill, and one which requires pragmatism over dogma. Rishi Sunak, another Prime Minister leading a divided party at a time of strikes, high inflation and low growth, would do well to study Callaghan's time in power. My guest today is a particularly special one, given our subject. She is James Callaghan's daughter, Baroness Margaret Jay. Margaret had a unique perspective on her father's long political career and also later served as a minister in the Tony Blair government. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce James Callaghan. Hi, Margaret. How are you? I'm fine, Tom. Thanks very much. It's rather odd to say I'm quite hot in London in June, but there we are. I suppose with one level, we should be grateful. We're talking about James Callaghan today. He was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1976 until 1979. He was also your father. He was born in 1912 in Portsmouth, I think his early life was defined somewhat by the death of his father, your grandfather, James Callaghan Sr., when he was nine, which left the family, as I understand it, without an income. What was your father's early life like after that? Well, I think it was pretty um, miserable in the sense of not being particularly materially advantaged. Uh, The one advantage he did have was that my grandmother, um, Charlotte, Lottie as we always called her, was a very strong character. And she was, I think, quite formidable in the uh, way she brought him and his sister, his elder sister, who was his only sibling, uh, up after she was widowed. They had a pretty strict Baptist, nonconformist, church-based approach to life. And I think in her widowhood, she was very much supported by the church. And that very much influenced the way that she brought up the children. 
I mean, both my father and his sister went to grammar school, which was in those days not necessarily something which would have been uh, automatic from that kind of background. And I think that educational basis combined, as I say, with my grandmother's pretty tough character and her association and involvement with the Baptist church gave them a pretty solid foundation, although it certainly wasn't one of luxury or expensive material base. Your father sat the entrance exam for Oxford in 1929, and he got in, but he couldn't afford the tuition fees to attend. That would set him apart from some of the people he was in cabinet with later on. Uh, Wilson, Healy, Barbara Castle, Tony Crosland, Roy Jenkins. I think all of them went to Oxford. What was your father's introduction into the politics of the left if it didn't come from university, which is true, I think, of most of the people I just mentioned? Where did it come from? Well, partly from the trades union movement, um, because he was um, 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 the Inland Revenue Staff Federation was the basis for his work, which he started when he was 17, 18, and he became involved with the union then. I think also he had some intellectual interest, which came from doing things with my mother, who he met as a teenager, um, uh, things like, you know, going to uh, what we would now call FE uh, lectures, going to various kind of um, out of out of work, I don't mean out of work instead of unemployed, but things which were apart from work interests. So I think that was probably it. And uh, as you know, as you probably know from your knowledge of him, the fact that he didn't have a university education was something which he was very conscious of, uh, really, throughout his career. Uh, he always said in a slightly kind of joking way, given the differences they had on politics, that it was one thing which drew him to John Major, um, because they were the only two prime ministers of that era who had not had a university education. It also meant, I think, that he was very keen for his children to have a, a, a sort of higher education part of their lives. And he was aware of that um, bit of difference, well, considerable difference between him and some of the people you've mentioned, although I think most of them were uh, realistic enough to say that he was, as it were, at the level when he could have had the university education. He wasn't a stupid or uh, difficult intellectually from them in terms of his natural intelligence, but he, of course, didn't have the formal training or any of the formal higher education that they had all experienced. I, I can imagine how it might have harboured a certain insecurity in him, or it's, it's certainly in some people anyway, perhaps not your father. I don't know. No, I think, I think you're right. I mean, but it was a sort of intellectual insecurity, which I think he kind of got over in the end, but he always, th always thought about it and always talked about it. As I say, I mean, John Major was not someone who was in his immediate uh, surroundings when, he was um, in in, uh, in in the government or involved primarily in the House of Commons, but I do remember him saying, you know, this was something which he shared with John Major in a positive way, you know. I listened to your father's Desert Island Discs a few weeks ago, and it was very clear that he viewed the struggle against fascism in the 1930s very much in ideological terms. This wasn't a struggle. Uh, the Second World War, I mean, it wasn't a struggle simply against another country, against Germany. It was a struggle against an idea. And indeed, he was, I think, the last prime minister to have, to have fought in the Second World War. Is it is that true, do you think? 
I would say so. I'm going back to what you asked me just before. I think some of the things which he, in a sense, got involved with, with these through these kind of further education experiences that I was talking about, these WEA, Workers' Education Association, lectures that he went to. That was where the intellectual base, if you want to call it, of that sort of anti-fascism uh, position probably was reinforced. But certainly, I mean, on things like the Spanish Civil War and so on, I think he was particularly concerned about, as you called it, the ideological struggle rather than simply the sort of military fights between different nations. He was a member of the Labour Party. And he was elected as a member of parliament in Labour's 45 landslide, which brought Labour to power, its first majority government. He had quite an astonishing rise through the Labour ranks. And a lot of people have attributed this to his having been a representative of the trade union movement. It might sound like a slightly obvious thing to point out, but can you explain why being so close to the trade unions was so important to Labour at the time? Um, the party's links to the unions now are not quite what they were then, so it might be good to contextualise that. Well, they're certainly not. But, I mean, of course, if you look at the history of the 30s, and as you've mentioned, not just the uh, struggle against fascism, but the struggle for decent living standards within the United Kingdom, and, you know, the whole work of uh, Lord Beveridge and the Beveridge Report during the war, the introduction of the welfare state, as we've known it for now 80 years, was something which was very much driven partly by the connections with the trades unions because they were enormously successful and powerful in terms of their membership, the types of industry that most people in that in this country then worked in were ones in which trades union membership was extremely important. And so even though uh, my father was involved with what we call a white collar union, the Inland Revenue Staff Federation, he identified quite closely with the aims and ambitions of those who were more directly representative of industrial labour, as so much of the country was. So I think that's important. I should also say um, because you said he rose through the Labour Party, that he was always something which today is not nearly so much, um, I think, uh, valued within politics and the higher reaches of politics. He was always a very good House of Commons man. And so, you know, immediately he came into the House of Commons. I think people at the top of the party then, I mean, the people like Ackley and Morrison and uh, so forth, uh, Hugh Dalton, did recognise his capacity, surprising, again, given as we've said, he wasn't an Oxford Union debating society graduate or anything, that he did have a capacity to um, move pretty easily within the House of Commons to speak well and not to have the kind of inhibitions about it that some people with his educational background and so on, you might have thought he would have. Yeah, I mean, I think it possibly does him a disservice simply to attribute his success in politics as being the rep as him being the representative of the unions. Um, I think there was considerable skill beyond that. Labour lost power in 1951, but your dad's political career kept flourishing. He was in the shadow cabinet every year that Labour was in opposition in the 50s and 60s. He actually ran for the leadership of the party in 1963. This was the time when you were a teenager, Margaret. What's your first memory of James Callaghan, the politician, rather than James Callaghan, your father? 
Well, it was a period when um, the whole subject of what now sounds enormously historical, but in those days was a very current factor, particularly for people of sort of teenage student age, the anti-colonialism, you know, the fact that many countries in Africa and so on, uh, India had become independent in the late 40s, but many countries in Africa were still struggling with independence uh, problems and um, difficulties with the UK mother country, as it was called. And my father, for a long period, was the shadow colonial secretary. And he became, therefore, really identified and friends with a lot of the people in the African political world, particularly, who were to become the leaders, prime ministers and whatever of their own countries. And my original, I suppose my, not original, but my well, my very first memory of him as a politician is much before that, when he was involved with setting up the um, what were then called Belisha crossings, zebra crossings on um, roads when he was uh, a junior minister in transport in the Ackley government. And my, me and my sister and I being made, not that we did it reluctantly, but being made to walk symbolically across the first one of these so that um, this was something identified as being an issue for families, not just for politics. So if you want my very first sort of thought of him being a political figure, that was probably it. But when I was a, a teenager and later when I was an undergraduate student, um, he was very much identified with some of the causes which we as students and undergraduates and um, you know, student politicians thought were important, as I say, particularly in the colonial, um, the, the colonial independence movement. And um, uh, I remember very clearly, I was an undergraduate at Oxford, him coming and speaking at the Oxford Union and to the Oxford Labour Club and doing all of those things, which in those days, again, were seen as more significant than they are today. And he was obviously someone who was listened to by my own generation. One of the things that's very interesting about your dad's career in this stage is that he started his career in Parliament, I think, considered by many to be on the left of the Labour Party. But through the 50s, there's a perception that he kind of ended up closer to the centre ground of the Labour Party and of British politics. Um, he was a kind of centre-left social democrat rather than a left-winger in the Nye-Bevan mould which is where he'd started out. I think for the most part, that's down to him having changed his his view on unilateral nuclear disarmament, or at least his policy on it. When he ran for the leadership of the party against Harold Wilson, to some extent he was running to Wilson's right. Do you have any idea why he kind of drifted towards the moderate wing of the party, or at least why he's per perceived to have done so? Uh, well, I think you would have to go back into all the entrails of all the debates with um, Bevan and the Bevanites and all of that at that very crucial period in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, but I would have thought that naturally, I mean, as a personality, as someone who I obviously got to know as a grown-up and, as you say, as a politician, that he would instinctively have been a moderate centre-right social democrat, as you say. I mean, not centre, sorry, I shouldn't say centre-right, centre-middle, if you want to call it. Um, and he always, as you know, even in the Blair days, always referred to him as not himself as not tr traditional Labour, but real Labour. <laughs> that was really his position. And I think that he would have seen the, the struggles within the party and the struggles within government about setting up the welfare state as very much one in which there had to be 
movement towards the centre if you wanted to establish these very important institutions and organisations in the context of the British society. And also that, as I say, when I think about him in context of anti-colonialism, of the independence movements in Africa, for example, I wouldn't have said that he was particularly sort of soft middle. He was pretty radical on those. Labour came back into power in 1964 with Harold Wilson as Prime Minister. The amazing thing about your father, Margaret, is he's the only person to have served in all four great offices of state. He was Chancellor, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister, in that order. I want to get to his time as Prime Minister later on, but if you look at the other positions first, he was Chancellor and Home Secretary in the 1960s, and he faced real difficulties in both roles. Um, He had to devalue the pound as Chancellor in 1967, which was a massive humiliation for Wilson's government. It never really recovered from that ordeal. Um, And then he was the first Home Secretary who had to contend with the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Did he consider himself an unlucky cabinet minister? Because he was, in a way, quite unlucky. I mean, Roy Jenkins was Home Secretary when Callaghan was Chancellor and Chancellor when Callaghan was Home Secretary. And he had a much easier ride, and I think arguably kind of obtained in the 60s, more heft, at least, as a cabinet minister. Did he consider himself unlucky? Um, I'm not sure that I ever heard him say that he was personally unlucky. I mean, the circumstances, particularly in the um, uh, the mid-60s that uh, led to the devaluation, were uh, bad, and they were economically bad, but... Um, I don't think that he felt it was some sort of uh, hexed on him, that this was something which he had to deal with. And of course, the, um, uh, the the troubles in Northern Ireland position. I mean, I think it was very interesting. If you ever, I looked at his book on that quite recently, not because I'm afraid to do with your programme, but to do with the fact that the BBC have been doing a very interesting series called uh, Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, which brought back the whole uh, era to me in a way that I've really sort of tried to forget, I suppose, or at least had forgotten. And it was very interesting because he wrote right at the beginning of that book um, that when he became Home Secretary, on the first day he was there, he asked the private office to provide him with a short list of those topics which he thought would be the ones most uh, aggravating or most you know, up the top of the agenda for the next six months, year or you know, in the time that he expected to be there. And they did, but they didn't include Northern Ireland. And he said, in retrospect, that was such an extraordinary thing and was part of the fact, part of the reason why, uh, in a sense, the troubles began. And I think this was made very clear in this um, history series, which I was just talking about, uh, that the, in a way, the abandonment of the Northern Ireland problems and issues by the United Kingdom and by the United Kingdom government was quite phenomenal and did, of course, lead to the uh, collapse of all of the systems within Northern Ireland, which we're all now very uh, familiar with but horrified by. Um, And, you know, he said that not only did they not even put Northern Ireland on the list of topics which might come up, when he subsequently investigated who in the Home Office was dealing with this, it was a very small and insignificant team. Now, that again... Um, was something which was, in a sense, historically problematic, but was not something which he felt uh, personally his bad luck. I mean, that was just something which 
happen to have happened and with all of the possible outcomes which we now are very familiar with. Yeah, I, th- I think you'd probably have to put a lot of it down to Harold Macmillan's observation about events. Yeah, and, and, events and, boy, yeah. Mm. yeah. I wanted to ask you something else. I mean, Labour today is a party that's still social democratic in its economic outlook, but it's a party that today is socially liberal. It's kind of on the liberal cosmopolitan left on social issues. Your father was clearly quite economically left-wing in his outlook. Looking through some of the positions he took in the 60s, I don't necessarily get the position he was very liberal. You mean on social policy? I mean on things, for example, like, I don't know, what we want to identify? Well, I think the one I would identify was his attitude on, on drug policy. He introduced quite tough sentencing laws on cannabis and other drugs when he was Home Secretary. There's actually a very interesting, I was reading last night, um, Richard Crosman, who was a, a Labour MP at the time, his diaries, when he was talking about the debates that the Labour cabinet was having on drug policy in the late 60s, he remarked that all of the Labour cabinet ministers who'd gone to university um, were in favour of a more lax approach to cannabis. And all of the ones who hadn't been to university, including your father, were in favour of tougher sentencing laws. There were also other things. He was pretty hostile to Britain joining the common market in the 60s. Yeah, I don't um, think that would have been, I don't think that was a liberal social position, was it, or anti-liberal social position. No, I mean, I think you're right, in a sense, to characterise his sort of position on social policy as being um, much more, well, much more of the, coming from his background. But of course, I mean, you know, you say that the Labour Party is now absolutely liberal on all these things. I don't know that you'd necessarily find that position if you looked at some of the um, local parties in in the Midlands, in the north of England, in the south of England. Um, that's very much, the, the, as still is, the kind of what you might call the intellectual wing of the Labour Party, which, is, as you rightly say, has been quite dominant. Not always, but has been quite dominant in quite a lot of the recent past. But in those days, I think it was what his position was, was in a sense much more reflective of the... Um, of the, of the mainstream of the country than it would be today. I mean, I, I, if you can stand it, I'll just quote you a little bit from his, the, his biography from, um, uh, from by uh, Kenneth Morgan. Um, I, this You may think this is grandiose because it's, it's quoting uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson about L- Abraham Lincoln. But he says of Abraham Lincoln, and um, uh, Morgan says it's the same with my dad, he is the true history of the American people in his time. Much the same could, sorry, excuse me, much the same, uh, Ken Morgan says, could be said of James Callaghan as a representative in the history of the British people for most of the second half of the 20th century. And I think that's a very, I mean, that's a very good summary. I mean, he wasn't out on the front line of the intellectual development for all the reasons which we've mentioned. Um, but it was, in a, a sense, much more reflective of mainstream attitudes than we might think today. Well, that's why I kind of wanted to bring it up, because Labour's front bench now, you you probably wouldn't get any Labour cabinet minister today advocating positions that are, on social issues, kind of socially conservative. Um the establishment of the Labour Party is very socially liberal and it does, I think, reflect how the Labour Party has changed or at least how the leadership of the party has changed on those issues. 
If we look at the ordeal and the issues that your father had to confront when he was a cabinet minister in the 60s, I think other politicians might have decided they were too difficult to carry on with and they might have thrown the towel in at a certain point. What was it about your father that meant he didn't do that? Well, do you mean you think he might have resigned completely after devaluation or whatever it may be? Yeah, possibly. Well, it's it's not an easy job being a cabinet minister. Emotionally, it's a tough job. What do you think it was about him that gave him the kind of gumption to carry on? Well, I think he was a strong character. I mean, the, the you know, the historians and <clears throat> certainly the immediate commentary after he left uh, office was that he had been very weak about the you know the whole period at the end of his term of office as prime minister. But I think he was a tough character. And he had um, this sense, you know, that he wanted to, his, he, he always said, you know, the Labour Party had been his university and his life. And he did genuinely want to see that it carried on in a prominent position. And of course, to do that, given where he was when he became in a cabinet minister, it remained, he, he never sort of, I don't think, ever felt well, you know, like the some current figures, maybe I'll give it up and go back to well-paid journalism or, you know, maybe I'll go off and live in New South Wales or like as some other members of the party did, go uh, abroad. I don't think that was ever his sort of driving force. His driving force was always, you know, the Labour Party is where my life and career is and I will stay with it. The term that brings to mind for me often with him is that he was very calm, I think. I've I've watched a lot of interviews of him and he was quite an unflappable interviewee. I've never seen him snap at an interviewer or lose his rag or lose his place. And it sounds like quite an odd observation, but he smiled through interviews, even when they weren't going very well. Um, everybody obviously has a kind of public persona, a face they put on. How close were his public and private personas? Well, I think he was very conscious of what he felt was an important need to stay calm and to appear pleasant and to appear in later years avuncular. You know, it was often said avuncular. But um, I'm sure if you read, as I've done, and I I know from my personal experience, um, that in private he was quite, uh, you know, he was quite uh, easily, easily irritated. I mean, I wouldn't say ruffled because ruffled would mean that he sort of wasn't sure of his position but easily irritated. And I think a lot of the people who worked with him, you know, you read uh, observations from people in the staff at Downing Street or the memoirs of fellow ministers or whatever it is. And they sometimes use the word, which is, I think is probably quite appropriate about how he could be quite tetchy. Um, you know, it's a funny word, but I think it sort of expresses, you know, the fact that um, impatient, tetchy, I don't know exactly what it is, but <clears throat> Certainly not sort of just the kind of laid back, sit back in the chair, um, smile at everyone and just get on with life sort of person at all. But that was partly, of course, because he always wanted things to be different. He wanted to change. He wanted this to be different or that to be different or in private life. He wanted it to be the same. He wanted lunch to be at one o'clock. And if lunch wasn't at one o'clock, then it was a bit of an irritation. Um so I think that I don't think the sort of calm, you know, smiling persona, the the kind of uh, now Robin, what are you talking about? Sort of things. Though you see the interviews with Robin Day, for example, the very tough interviewer of that generation. Um, 
I think he had good relations with those people and he regarded that as important. He did have good relations with people who were in the media and uh, people who were in positions where they could uh, irritate him if they want to. And they certainly did sometimes, but he hardly ever allowed that to show in the, the, in the public arena. I mean, I think you'd probably describe most prime ministers being tetchy in a way. I don't think it's a strange characteristic for a politician to hold. I think the people who get to that sort of level kind of have to be tetchy in a way. It depends what you think the word means. I think to members of your staff, it probably means a different thing from than it does to your family or to people who you know are your equals or at least your cabinet colleagues. I think what we've uncovered so far is somebody who was kind of a living representative of not only the Labour Party, but of Labour voters. He was quite close towards the centre of that movement and he had a good understanding of what they thought. Do you think that's why he was chosen as Prime Minister in 1976? Um, Harold Wilson had resigned and your father defeated five other candidates, pretty considerable candidates, it has to be said as well, to become Labour Prime Minister. Do you think that's why he became Prime Minister? Because he was sort of, he was the best compromise candidate? Uh, Yes, except I think the word compromise is slightly negative. Um, I think um, he was, in a sense, the well, you, you described the fact that he had held the, these other three major offices. He was extraordinarily experienced in government by that stage. And it is odd in a way, isn't it? When we look at prime ministers in the last 25 or 30 years um, who have come to office with so little ministerial experience and really very little experience at the, the, the top of politics, some of them, um, you do feel that that was something which was different then, uh, the the value of having that sort of experience, as you've described, some of the crises which he had dealt with, like uh, the, you know, the whole economic crisis in the 64 Labour government, the 66 Labour government, sorry, um, the Northern Ireland troubles, you know, the whole of those various things which had emerged during that period. Um, had given him enormous uh, both policy and practical and political experience. And I think that was very much valued in a way perhaps that it isn't today um, because, in a sense, cabinet government was much more valued in a way that it isn't today. And so being your first amongst equals, as the Prime Minister is constitutionally meant to be, was a much more realistic um, assumption about someone who held that position. Labour had been in power for most of the time since 1964, when your father became Prime Minister. So the Premiership, in a way, came to your father quite late in Labour's natural, that Labour government's kind of shelf life, if you like. And, um, and sorry to interrupt you, but by the standards of modern politics, quite late in his life. Yes, absolutely. That's that's true. I, I think he was 64, 65 when he became Prime Minister. And he was derided by some in the newspapers as as a tail-end Charlie. That's the term I've seen. Really, the economic situation in Britain had gotten worse and worse throughout the 60s and 70s. Your father had to contend with inflation, with low growth, with strikes. In some ways, it's not a dissimilar situation to today's. This isn't a podcast about economics. I'm not interested, first and foremost, in, in what Callaghan did economically. 
But as a leader of a divided, quite a divided political party and a government with a very small majority in parliament, what was the politics of trying to govern that economy like for your father? What type of chief executive was he? Well, I mean, that's again interesting in the context of the changes that have happened since then. Um, you know, he was much more what one might call chairman of the board more than chief executive, if you see what I mean. Although if you read again, I mean, I, I am dependent on third sources as much as you are probably on the detail of all of this. But it, he was much more the person who tried to bring people together to uh, achieve consensus, which wasn't easy given the different positions, particularly on economics of the people who were his immediate colleagues. But he was somebody who, in a sense, was not an ideological flame carrier. He wasn't saying, we have to do X and, you know, stay with me or leave. He was much more someone who was trying to create a consensus about a general position, which, as we've established, was not probably necessarily on the extreme ideological side of either part of the political parties. Do you think that in a way, the circumstances that presented themselves in 1976, a very small majority in Parliament, difficult economic circumstances, do you think that in different times, in perhaps better economic and political circumstances, for better for the Labour Party, I mean, do you think your father might not have become Prime Minister? Do you think he was kind of perfectly suited for the times? Well, that's a very good question. To be honest, I haven't ever thought about that. Um, I, I wonder. Um, you mean you think that if it had been a more uh, a more settled situation, that someone with more uh, determined views of a particular kind might have become prime minister? Well, perhaps, but of course, um, as as you you know from all of the background we've talked about, that the problem with the Labour Party was always and has always been is still really uh, a question of holding together um, different positions and making it possible, particularly in government, to um, have a have a considered general position which at least people support to enable you to take things forward, rather than uh, being a particular ideological. Uh, as I said, flame carrier, which we you know we saw just recently with um, Jeremy Corbyn, doesn't necessarily succeed in terms of even the Labour Party in opposition, let alone in government. So I think that um, it may have been that someone who was on one uh, end of the party or the other might have become prime minister. But to be honest, if you look at the characters involved, I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, because I think that because of their particular individual characteristics, they probably wouldn't have had general support or enough support to form a majority. Yeah, I think Jenkins was probably too liberal. Crosland probably as well. Dennis Healy was probably seen as being too right-wing and Michael Foote perhaps seen as being too left-wing. And certainly sort of- Tony Benn, you see, who, who had yeah. aspirations, would certainly have been too, I think, far too... Uh, far out on the wing to enable any kind of consensus to be achieved. Your father had a very difficult time dealing with the trade unions as Prime Minister. Britain lost an extraordinary number of working days to strikes under his premiership. Now, that was a problem that he inherited. It wasn't a problem that he caused. But given how close to the unions he had been, was he dismayed by how difficult the unions ended up being for him? 
Oh, I think absolutely, yes. I think dismayed is probably too um, weak a word. I think he was uh, deeply depressed and saddened by it. I mean, as you know, he said um, after he left office, you know, I let down the country. And I think why he felt he had used that expression, although I think in later years he probably reconsidered it, but I think he felt that that was because the people who he regarded genuinely as collaborators, con brothers, you know, people who he had had strong personal relationships with as well as good working relationships, had frankly, um, he had been unable to maintain those relationships. And indeed, the trade union leaders, some of them, had been unable to uh, lead their trades unions in a way which uh, had been thought to be possible. I mean, all of the things which we now regard as completely uh, obsolete, like the prices and incomes policy and concordats and, uh, you know, wage agreed wage arrangements with the government and the trades unions were things which had been uh, negotiated with the government, not necessarily his government, but in that period of Labour government. And they fell apart, partly because uh, of circumstances which were, as you said, much worse economically than they had been earlier, but also partly because some of the trades union leaders simply didn't lead or led in the wrong direction or were differently persuaded from their previous colleagues. And the really the concordat between the Labour government and the Labour unions just broke down. And I think he found that very distressing. Do you think he was possibly too close to the unions to be able to resolve the problems that some unions and strikes presented? I mean, it perhaps is a slightly superficial example, but if two people are having a fight, if a couple are having a fight, it's the sort of first rule of mediation, of couples mediation, that a friend of theirs doesn't act as the mediator. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a good point. But of course, I mean, uh, my dad wasn't the chancellor. He wasn't the person in actually personally in charge of prices and incomes policy, which was the, um, the nub of the various crises which occurred during that period. Um, well, I suppose you, you could posit that. I agree with your point about personal mediation. But on the other hand, um, if you can imagine somebody who was not close to them in any sort of personal sense, couldn't pick up the phone, as I know that he did you know, in the late hours of the evening or get them round for breakfast in the early hours of the morning, um, because they didn't have that personal contact with them, I think it would have been even more difficult. I think the difficulty was, as I said just now, that there was a, a formal breakdown of the formal agreements that are supposed to have been set up by the government, which may have been partly the government's cack-handedness, but it was very much driven by the economic circumstances getting worse and worse. And, and as I said before, by the trades union leaders not necessarily being able to deliver their members. I mean, the, the thing that is seen to have lost him the general election in 1979 to Margaret Thatcher's Conservatives is the winter of discontent. This particular choke point of strikes over the winter of 78, 79, his premiership was only three years long. This is what's very interesting, because if you look at his career as a whole, his time as prime minister was very short. But also, if you look at his time as a politician, it's difficult to kind of tie his career together. He started out on the left. He came to the centre. He started out as the representative of the trade unions, but had a very difficult time dealing with them as prime minister. He changed his position on the common market. He was a very 
pragmatic left winger. But do you think he had a kind of grand vision or an end game? If he'd won in 1979, what do you think he'd have tried to do? Because I see tactical brilliance with him, getting the government through the latest tight squeeze in parliament or in economic terms. I'm not sure I see a longer term vision. Many would say to the extent that he had a legacy at all, it was to sort of preempt Thatcherism with budget cuts and things like that. What do you think, what do you see as his vision? Well, I, I, first of all, let me just say and remind um, you and the people who are listening to this that, of course, although he lost the 79 election, he was always much further ahead on the personal polls than Margaret Thatcher, even during this very bad period of, um, uh, as you said, the winter of discontent, as it was called, and this uh, economic and industrial strife. Uh, he was always seen as the person who people would have preferred to be prime minister. Um, so that that's an interesting phenomenon, I think, because that does say that it was about Labour Party politics, trade union policy, trade union over, what should we call it, over mighty barons of trade unions, whatever you want to call it. That did really cause the defeat in that way. Um, I would say that his, his vision was not one of some grand strategic sort of outcome, but was of what we now call the post-war consensus, the sort of consensus of the welfare state, of the gradual improvement in living standards. He was, as you probably know, very keen to improve educational standards and made some very important interventions on educational policy. He was concerned about our position in the world as, the, as uh, Britain and had again very important and, I think, um, successful relations with a number of foreign governments who, in a sense, respected Britain for their positions in a way which would certainly, I'm sad to say, not be true today. Um, so I think it was not something in which, again, as I said much earlier, we could attach some great um, ideological flame to, but it was a very responsible position about economic prosperity, about economic prosperity which was enjoyed by the whole population, about egalitarianism, particularly in the uh, social policy area, not adventurous social policy, but egalitarianism, good education, a very, very important factor in all of his thinking and all of his work, I think. And also, as I say, keeping Britain in its position on the world stage, which was you know, punching above our weight for a very long time, certainly post-Suez in terms of our military and other capabilities, but having the influence and the position that we had in the world, which I'm afraid we have now, frankly, lost. I mean, we didn't necessarily lose it um, in, in the immediate period following my father's premiership, but we've certainly lost it now. And I think if he were alive today, that would be the thing which most distressed him. It's it's very difficult, I think, to separate how slim his majority was in the Commons from a lot of the kind of triangulation that he had to do in terms of politics. I do get the impression he was a very sensible politician and quite a grounded one. The Labour Party was out of power for 18 years after the general election in 1979. Labour has a tendency to kind of string up its leaders after they leave office. Many Labour leaders are now hate figures in the party to some faction or other. Your father is very interesting because he's, I'd say, where people like Blair have become hated, people like Corbyn have become hated, Ramsay MacDonald, if you want to go further back. I would say there's a kind of ambivalence to your father and to, and also to Harold Wilson as well. 
both of them are were more or less written out of Labour's history under Tony Blair. How did he feel about that? And how did he feel about what Labour became? Well, I think on your first point, I mean, one of the things which was uh, useful and interesting as far as the perception of him and his career was concerned was that he had a long post-prime ministership career. I mean, he interestingly made quite a good hand of his um, position, in the, not necessarily in the party, but as a senior figure in Parliament. Um, he was very much respected, for example, in uh, the House of Lords, which is, you know, not necessarily the place where people go to make re- political reputations. But he did consolidate a reputation there on the things which I've just mentioned of, you know, the interests in the particular social policy developments and the international policy developments that he cared about, which in a way redressed a lot of the particular aggravation and tension that had been about some of the headline issues when he was prime minister. Um, as to the new Labour and the, the the Blair years and all of that, I think that he felt, um, I think it's worth looking actually, if you want to see his reaction to that, at his interview, which he gave um, to the BBC on the morning after the 97 election, in which he enormously welcomed the fact that, you know, the Labour Party was back in power. He was very much felt that he was now a, an elder statesman taking a back seat. And I think he did did think that. I mean, he did feel that this was a different world, that this was a different generation. And all of the things which, uh, as I tried to mention in quoting from Ken Morgan about him being a reflection of the way society developed, had in a sense... His, his time had gone. But that didn't mean that he stopped thinking about politics or stopped being interested in it. And, of course, he would have supported quite a number of the things which Tony Blair did, which became unpopular, um, in a way because they were part of his world and part of his thinking. Um, he always said, you know, I'm, I'm not new Labour, I'm not old Labour, I'm original Labour. And um, that was, in a sense, his mantra during that period. And I think it was what he what he genuinely thought, you know, was that he was the original and people went off in different directions. But he was there at the core and sort of sensibly going on with his own interests and his given his seniority and his platform still making an impact with them. Very finally, very briefly, he passed away in 2005. What was he proudest of? Oh, I think he was proudest of the fact that the Labour Party had, in a sense, given him the kind of life and career and opportunities and so on, which enabled him to do things which, as a young man, he had thought he would only be able to talk about or, you know, via um, via sort of minor player on. I mean, I think he was very proud of that. He was also pretty proud of um, the personal things. He was pretty proud of the family, of the way, you know, his family, not just his children, but his wider grandchildren, all of that, had happened and developed. And the opportunities they had been given, which he would have thought were largely or partly due to the way in which society had changed and the way in which he had enabled it to change through his very long career. Margaret, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating insight into your father, James Callaghan, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom between 1976 and 1979. You're in the House of Lords. Where can people, if you have things you're involved in now, where can people find those? Um, Well, I I don't have a a website, but I have an email address and I'm very happy always to answer questions, particularly from students and so on. Thank you, Margaret.
Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.